thank you. Will you, will you pray with me? Jesus, we praise your name. We thank you that you are king sitting on your throne right now. And you have sent us your spirit, like Tim said, to teach us and to bring to remembrance. And so we're asking for that help right now. As we get into your word, will you help us to understand what you have to say to us? It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. That's my wife. Thank you for reading the word. Welcome uh, to Outward Church. We are uh, proving every single week that church is not a building, it's a people. And so here we are meeting in a new place. Uh, There was a a comment that this might be, in in the history of Outward Church, the most churchy of all uh, places that we've been because we started in like a theater and then we're in a warehouse, then we're in a barn, and this is like a wedding reception area. So uh, it's not exactly a church, but I would agree, maybe the most churchy kind of a setting we've been in. But I think it's quite fitting because the church being the bride of Christ that would be uh, sitting in a place where uh, many, many couples have began their journey together, their marriage, and God designed designed marriage to be a display of the mystery of, of that relationship between the church and Christ himself. Now, the church was not uh, the place where you would worship, the place where you would find God and his presence was not always uh, everywhere where we were gathered. It was one place, one place specific. It was in Jerusalem, and it was in the temple. This was the place where the presence of God would dwell, in the holy of holies, in the center of this area where no one was allowed to go, and an area of concentric courts that would surround the inner court would be only the priests. Outside of that would be a sacrifice preparation area, and outside of that there would be a court of the Gentiles. This court, the court of the Gentiles, is the one that Jesus would clear. What this might have looked like, and I don't know, uh, I, I couldn't think of somewhere locally that, that, that fits perfectly uh, this scene. It was, a, it was crowded. This was Passover, so it was particularly crowded. There was much commerce going on. There was not much room to move through. It was shoulder to shoulder. Uh, kids would have had to hold tightly to their parents. The closest thing I could think of was like the state fair. Right, people yelling to get your business uh, and and uh, to get your attention. And could you imagine in a, in a in a place like this where one person was able to clear it all out? Jesus is very calculated here in this moment. He knows exactly what he's come to do. Uh, Tim Keller pointed out that the, the book of Luke is kind of broken down into three sections. Uh, the first section is kind of an introduction to who Jesus is. Uh, the, the middle section is, is kind of like, so it's, it's talking to the head, right? The middle section of Luke kind of talking to the will uh, of a person, kind of what does it look like to follow Jesus. And this last section, which we enter now in Luke 19, is about about experiencing this Jesus. It is, a, it is a felt experience. He is showing you who he is, his very character and his, na- and his nature. He knows exactly what's, what's happening. 
right? He's avoided Jerusalem because he knows that when he goes to Jerusalem, he'll die. Because there are many people who have said that they would like to see Jesus dead. He has made many, many people angry. He has upset their system of of, of long-standing tradition and, and righteousness and worship and uh, self-made religion, and he's breaking their rules, and so they're angry at Jesus. There are already many people who would like to have him dead, and so often the people that he would heal, heal he would say to them, don't tell anyone. But now it's time. And like a, like a good movie, I'm not recommending these movies, but like a John Wick or like a Matrix, this scene where the guy's going to walk in by himself, surrounded. This place has guns everywhere, and he's got guns strapped to his leg and ammunition and strapped across and a backpack inside of a long trench coat, and he walks right in the front door, right? Right through the metal detector in Matrix. You know, he knows what's going to happen. He's going to set up the metal detector and he's going to be under attack. Jesus knows what's going to happen right now. This is violent. This gentle and lowly Jesus that we talk about often, our sermon series is called The Real Jesus. We've been looking through the book of Luke to try and show you what is the character and nature of Jesus. Who is Jesus? The real Jesus, not the one that we think we know or have come to understand. And we talk regularly about this man being a friend of sinners, that he's gentle and lowly, He's meek, and he comes in violently. Where? Into the house of worship, into the temple. And now we have to do business with, like, is he this or is he that? Yes. See, meekness is not weakness when it comes to defending the defenseless. Right? It is, it is, it is with great strength that the Lion of Judah marches right in, though he's unarmed. Though he doesn't ride in on a war horse, he rides in on a baby donkey. Takes one night break after the triumphal entry and enters into the temple. And, and the Luke account is very brief. What, is it, what does it say? Luke 19, he says, He entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold that's what he did. But if you look at Mark, the book of Mark, the book of Matthew, the synoptic gospels paint a larger picture. John, the clearing of the temple might be two different events, might be the same event, not sure. But, but the account in Matthew and Mark is the flipping of tables. It says they pre- he prevented any merchandise from coming through. So every single person yelling, in your face, violently flipping, physically pushing. In the Count in John, he, fig- he makes a whip. He's hitting people, potentially, and he clears it out. He clears out the court of the Gentiles of, of any kind of selling or, or business. Why? Why does he do this? Isn't Jesus about to eliminate 
our need for a temple? See, the temple is the place where we, the, the, the people of Israel would have had to migrate every single year to come to Jerusalem uh, to, to make sacrifice for atonement for their sins. The temple is the place of the altar where they would sacrifice animals. And, and, and actually, what the people were doing here in the courts were not, was not even wrong, Right? It's not even wrong to sell animals. If you, if you look at uh, Leviticus, there's, there's provisions in Deuteronomy. There's provisions for a person to travel with money and then purchase their sacrifice. Because they're coming from a distance, they don't have to bring the animal with them. They bring the money to buy the animal to sacrifice. Nothing wrong with that, Right? And so, of course, there has to be a system of, of commerce, raising of the animals. There's a lot of logistics there, right? You've got to have a market front. You've got to advertise your services. There's nothing wrong with this business. So why does he clear it out? He gives us some clues in the words that he says. So take a look uh, in Luke uh, chapter 19 in verse 48. Eight. He said to them a simple statement, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, those who had studied, those who knew their scripture would know he actually quoted two Old Testament passages. In that one statement, he quoted two Old Testament passages. And often, you know, our, our Bibles have numbers in them, right? Chapters and verses. It didn't for them, right? So how would they reference a particular scripture? If they wanted to talk about Jeremiah 7 or Isaiah 56, they would say a line from that. A line from that passage would give you uh, an understanding. Here's what I'm talking about. Here's what I'm referring to, okay? So we have to understand, if we're going to try and get into Jesus' head about why did he clear the temple, we have to go and look at what he's talking about. The first is Isaiah 56, a house of prayer. Turn with me to Isaiah 56. If you have your Bibles, if not, we'll have them on the screen. In Isaiah 56, there is a prophecy about what, about what God is planning to do, uh, about including uh, foreigners into his family. There is discussion even in, in the design of the temple. Think about the fact that the temple had a courtyard called the Gentile court the court of the Gentiles. Why would God's, God's holy temple include a place for Gentiles? There was a plan. Gentiles is any non-Jewish person, right? Any non-Jewish person. Uh, Israel is the, is, the, is the family of God. It's God's chosen people. But we, I'm, I'm assuming there's not too many people who are, are born Jewish, we are Gentiles, so now we have a place in this temple system, if we've lived in that place, a place that was for us at the Jewish place of worship. We have a place uh, for Gentiles, for us. He says in uh, verse 6, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. 
For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Other translations say to the nations. In the book of Mark, it actually includes that. When Jesus said this quote, the book of Mark even includes, it's not just a house of prayer, a house of prayer for all nations. There is an inclusion here. Jesus is clearing out us a place for you and me. See, because all of this business that was happening was in a place that was supposed to be a place of prayer, a place of prayer for Gentiles. Jewish people could be, go in beyond that point. Jewish people could buy that animal and go into the inner courts and give their sacrifice, but the Gentiles couldn't. And because the business was happening here on these courts, there was no place for the Gentiles. There was no place for worship. Nobody is worshiping in this place. They're just going through the, the system and the, the process of the temple system. And Jesus is clearing out a place. The other part of what uh, we, we need to see, what we need to understand is the other part of this quote, it says, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. He's quoting Jeremiah 7, specifically using that phrase, a house, a den of robbers. So we have to go to Jeremiah 7 to understand his mindset, okay? And if you were to look at the whole version of of chapter 7, I don't want to give you the director's cut when the first time you may be watching this movie, you ever watch a movie for the first time and you're watching the director's cut and you're like, ah, can we just get past all the talking part? Like, I just want to watch the movie. Like, if you like the movie, go back and watch the director's cut. So I'll I'll, I'll save the kind of director's cut and give you kind of a summary of what's happening here in in Jeremiah 7. They're they're just kind of in this process of, of going through the motions, they're, they're going and doing whatever they want and then coming and sacrificing and saying, hey, I did it, right? It, it, it's, like, it's like taking advantage of grace, like Jesus forgives me so that I can do whatever I want, right? In that day, it would have been uh, my sacrifice, this, this sacrifice covers all my sins so I can basically do whatever I want. And so the, place, the temple becomes this place where they're just going through the motions, they're, 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 they're doing the things that, that God called them to do. They're keeping the law technically, but their heart's not there. There's no prayer. Prayer is not a part of that. So Jeremiah 7, I want you to take a look at, at verse 9. It says, Will you steal, steal, murder, commit adultery, Swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered. Only to go on and doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord." If this is what Jesus is referencing, this is some harsh, harsh language. He's basically comparing them to a time when in the, in the temple they were sacrificing to other gods at the same time they're sacrificing to the one true God. This, this was a serious accusation. And these religious leaders would have been like, 
angry. Some people would be confused because they're thinking, wait a minute, like, aren't we doing what we're supposed to be doing? Like, isn't sacrificing what we're supposed to be doing? Like, what are we doing that's wrong here? Some people would have been confused. And I think something uh, that, that we can see that I'm just going to kind of drop right here for a moment, there seems to be a type of religious activity that, that, that we can do that is infuriating to Jesus. There is a busyness. There is a going through the motions. There is a taking advantage of a system of grace. There is a maybe a going to church, a giving, a serving, a going to community group, even a reading of the Bible that would be infuriating to Jesus. Good things for the wrong reasons. Going through the motions. And Jesus clears it out. For what? Because it's supposed to be a place of prayer, a place of relationship, a place of connection. Prayer can never be going through the motions unless unless your prayer is like, can I have this? This isn't going so good. Occasionally going to Jesus when you need help. Prayer is a two-way relationship. I'm preaching to myself here because my prayer is not always what I think God is inviting me to. See, relationship is what God is after. But let's go back into this temple moment in what Jesus is doing as he walks in. He knows exactly. Every step has is, is been planned meticulously. He even had this statement crafted. You don't think he was thinking all night before going into the temple? Here's what I'm going to say when I walk in there. Jesus knows, in fact, he just said it in, in, uh, at the end of Luke 18. Jesus knows that going into Jerusalem, is, walk, is he's going to Jerusalem to die. He knows that's what's going to happen. He knows that this is going to infuriate them. He thinks about exactly what he's going to do. And he walks in there like he owns the place. And he starts rearranging the furniture. And notice nobody stops him. Nobody tries to stop him. I wonder if that's because they knew it was wrong. Like when your mom, when you were a kid or whatever, uh, you know, finds something, whatever, in your room and is going through it and she's, you know, taking it, confiscating, throwing it away, whatever. Like you don't stop her because you knew it wasn't ever supposed to be there. They don't stop him. But he is, he is making a confrontation. In this moment, he comes in with violence, looks him straight in the eyes and says, you're either going to crown me or you're going to kill me. He's not hiding anymore. He was never hiding. He was always waiting for the right moment. See, Jesus is taking his rightful place as king 
that he would ultimately be crowned on the lifting of the cross. As he marches into Jerusalem, he is making a declaration of authority. He rides in on a donkey like a king, not like one we thought. And he walks into the temple like he owns the place. In fact, even says, my father's house. He is saying he owns the place. And he's rearranging the furniture. Right? Who, who can walk into a place and do with what they want into someone else's house? That's his house. And he's clearing it out for what it was supposed to be used for all along. So what does that mean for us? I uh, uh, oversee the counseling ministry here at Outward Church. If you didn't know, we have a counseling ministry at Outward Church uh, where we provide free counseling to anybody who needs it, biblical counseling, to anybody who needs it. We have a team of counselors. And so much of my time is, is thought about like, like change. How is it that, that people find change? How is it that, that people grow in their spiritual walk as I come alongside and helping people to uh, see more in Jesus, to look to Jesus more, to be uh, hungry for God's word? I'm, I'm thinking about wh- how change comes about. In this book, Deeper, that I'm reading right now, it's by Dane Ortland. It's a follow-up, a more comprehensive book to a, a book that he's written more recently called Gentle and Lowly. He's describing Jesus in the subtitle of this, Real Change for Real Sinners. This is his, his argument that he's making here is that we change not by some external means, but by going deeper into Jesus, that when we look at him, it has the effect of changing us. And, 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 and part of the reason we named the series Real Jesus is because we know that for each one of you to be looking at Jesus, if your eyes are on him, not just the details of the story, but him, his character, his heart, as you start to see him for who he really is, not who you think he is, it changes you. Specifically in this place of scripture, we start to see what will it look like for Jesus to rule in your life to be king in your life. And speaking of the authority or the ruling of Jesus, Dean Ortland says this, talking about Jesus, just before his ascension, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. That's found in Matthew 28. He's not hoping to be in charge. He rules supremely now. The world's sidelining of his authority does nothing to reflect the reality of that authority. I'm going to read that again. The world's sidelining of his authority does nothing to reflect the reality of that authority. From heaven's perspective, everything is going according to plan. Jesus Christ is overseeing all that happens, both in the church and in in world history at large. Our perception of and ability to see his rule may wax and wane, but that's perception only. His actual rule holds steady, supreme, strong, exhaustive, all-seeing. Did you catch that? He rules. 
It's just our perception of it. Do we see it? Do we yield to it? Do we submit to it? See, if you heard last week's message, it's Salem, Pastor Matt talked about what happened uh, as Jesus rode in on the donkey. I'd never heard this before. It blew my mind. I have not been able to stop thinking about it. He talks about the fact that why is so much said about this donkey, this cult of a donkey, never been ridden before? Why is this a focus? Jesus gets onto this donkey that would have been too small for him, right? His legs probably touching the ground and walks in. I, I always thought that it, there, there was a focus there on humility. I think that's a part of it. Uh, but, but one of the things pointed out that, that Pastor Matt pointed out last week uh, is that what would you imagine would happen to a donkey that's never been ridden before when somebody tries to get on it, right? Where are we going, right? Where to, right? He just takes it. He's just, just going to take it. You try and go and get on a donkey that's never been ridden. Let me know what happens, right? <laughs> but this is the Jesus who calms the storms. This is the Jesus who is asleep in the middle of the storm. He is the, the prince of peace. He is the ruler of the universe, the creator of the world. And when he gets on this donkey, it is completely submitted to his rule. And he rides right through the crowd, the chaos of the people yelling and shouting, and this donkey rides forward. See, we are afraid of what it might look like to give Jesus rule and authority in our lives. We feel like we might start kicking and screaming and bucking and, and, and we think about what might be lost. But Jesus, when we al allow him or better said, recognize his rule and, and, and yield to the rule that does exist, we start to move forward under his complete control. He's gentle, he's guiding, he's leading, but then there are some times when he comes into our temple, okay? The temple was a place of worship, okay? It's the center of worship. Greatest hopes, greatest desires, greatest uh, attention would, would have, should have been given at the temple. It's the center of their worship. And what is the center of our worship? The Bible says it's our heart. It is the center of our motivation, the reason we wake up in the morning, the reason we're driven to chase after whatever it is that we love most. And we love some really good things. I love being a parent. I love my kids. I really want them to turn out great and love Jesus, but uh, I, get, I get scared because I don't, I don't know that I'm doing it right. I know that I'm not doing it right almost all of the time. And that starts to occupy my heart space and I start uh, worrying and thinking about and I lose sleep over uh, the parenting decisions that I'm, that I'm making. This is a good thing to want, right? 
But the problem is, is it finds its way too close to my center of worship, right? We can do this with our job. We can do this with our marriage. We can do this with church. We can do this with, uh, with anything. Anything that we love that gets too close into our center of worship that was designed for one thing, and that is worship of the one true God, and worship is relationship. Prayer. So Jesus comes into our center of worship and starts rearranging the furniture, acting like he owns the place. And that's offensive to us. Because now we're confronted with some things, some things that we knew shouldn't have been there. We're confronted with some things that we love and we're not sure that we're ready to get rid of to let go of. But he's clearing out a space because his desire for you is is a relationship. It's it's worship. I mentioned uh, a couple of weeks ago this idea of of what what do you get for following Jesus? What's in it for us? You get Jesus. That's what you get. Do you realize that this very temple that Jesus is clearing doesn't even exist a few years later? So was Jesus really passionate about this particular space in preserving it? I think he's... he's, He's, he's on the way to the cross. He's putting an, an end to our need for a temple altogether. He's clearing out space, but he's, he's, he's certainly provoking. He's drawing our attention to something. When we look in to see who he is and try to understand his passions, it changes us. In, in Revelation, uh, I, just, I just wanted to, to point out, um, in, case, in case you didn't know, uh, there, there isn't, there isn't an, another temple that's ever, that's ever coming. Jesus put an end to that. Uh, and, and in Revelation uh, chapter 21, verse 22, it's not going to be on your screen. It's just something that, that came to my mind. Uh, John is, is uh, he, he's, he, he's, he has this vision of the new Jerusalem, the future, and, he, and he, he makes this observation. He says, and I saw no temple in the city. This is verse 22. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. When we are with God and in his presence after this blip that is our life, we will not need to go to the temple because God himself is the temple. And we, it says in 1 Peter, are living stones, a part of that temple. See, God is always carving out pushing out a space 
for us to be together. There's this phrase that shows over and over in your life, or over and over throughout Scripture, I'm sorry. It says it in Exodus, I think it's, it's maybe, maybe the first time, I'm not sure, but he says, and I will be your God and you will be my people. This phrase is throughout Scripture that God's heart is to be our God and for us to be his people. And that's what we're pushing against. We're pushing against his authority. It's what we pushed against in the garden. I don't want God to be God. I want to be God. His heart, because he knows that that's the only right relationship, the only way that that will work, that the only way this will work is when we let him be God and that we will be his people. But what do we get out of that? Relationship. We get to be close to him. We get to be with him. We get to be speaking with him. There's, there's, there's an issue here. Jesus is, is actually just as confrontational um, with you. You see, Jesus is not willing to take any position in your heart other than king. King is the only option. Ruling your heart is the only option. Now, we may wax and wane in our awareness of his rule, but we, we actually don't get to be indifferent. He is saying to you, as he said uh, to everybody in the temple on that day, you either crown me or you kill me. And how do we kill Jesus? We reject his rule. We don't submit to his daily leading and his daily guidance. We say, I've got something else that I love more. I've got something else that I'm after. I've got something else that's more important to me. And so he's saying, crown me or kill me because it's not going to stay this way any longer. And when we submit to this gentle and lowly Savior who is uh, offering us rest, an easy yoke and a light burden, he's saying, will you let me rule? Like he did to this, this donkey, watch what happens I will not hurt you, I will not harm you, I will not break you, I will lead you and I will guide you. I'll gently break you. I'll get into the things that are in your heart that are too close to that center of worship and I'll clear them out so that we can have relationship. That's who Jesus is. He's passionate about that. He rules. He's king. We're going to go to a time of communion right now. Uh, and I may have caught some of the ushers off guard. They didn't know exactly when I'd finish. <laughs> Invite the musicians to come up. But we, we do this every single week. Okay? We do this every week not only as a remembrance of who Jesus is, but it's also a submission to his rule.
So we take his body and his blood that's offered to us and we bow our heads for the king. We ask him to rule in our hearts. We remember his sacrifice, his coronation, the lifting of Jesus on the cross. This is the moment the crown was placed on his head and he took his right position as king. So this is our first time here and in this space, so it's a little bit different. As the ushers get into their position, we actually just get up right where you're at. We don't pass a plate. Just get up, find the closest one to you. And so go ahead and do that now. Go ahead and grab a a cup and some cracker. And then take it back to your seat. Go back to your seat, and we're going to take the elements together. I want to learn from... I want to learn from Jeremiah 7. I don't want to just accept this grace that's being offered, this this bread which represents his body, this cup which represents his blood. I don't want to just take that and say, I'm forgiven. I don't want to to just go through the motions. I I don't want to be about religious activity that would make Jesus angry. I want to I submit and yield to the rule of Jesus. Will you, will you join me in that? We're going to take the cracker. This is a remembrance of the, his body that was broken. Bring to mind the, the sin in your life asking God for forgiveness and recognize that the juice that represents his blood it pays for it atones those sins and you are completely forgiven those who confess let's take the blood pray with me Jesus you are ruling all authority on heaven and earth has been given to you And I don't always recognize your authority. I don't always recognize your rule. God, we thank you that you pushed your way to the cross and you took your seat as king. Would you continue to do that in our hearts? Even when we don't invite you, will you push your way in and clear out what was made to worship you and you alone? We love you and it's your name we pray. Amen.